Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Six days from Christmas. Six days. The final countdown is on. Um, Are you guys ready for Christmas? No? Thank you for being honest. Thank you for being honest. I appreciate that. Are there any kids in here? Are the kids ready for Christmas? Are the kids ready? Maybe, yeah. So, uh, so I know that we all have different Christmas traditions. Uh, I grew up the youngest of five kids. I think we actually have a picture up here of us. And so you can see my mom with her beautiful red hair, my older brother, uh, Scott and Richard, my oldest sisters, Tammy and Kim. And then, of course, they saved the best for last. There's little Pastor Dan right down there in the bottom. And Christmas was just a really big deal for us. My dad's probably taken the picture, by the way. But, but, but the way that Christmas worked in our house is basically all year long, our parents wouldn't buy us anything new. So no new T-shirts, no new socks, no new underwear. Uh, that way they would have more Christmas gifts to give to us on Christmas morning. And so we would get to Christmas morning and my mom would, would wrap like 20 to 30 gifts per person. And so you would come down Christmas morning and there would be 150 to 200 gifts that were wrapped up. And it was amazing. I loved it as a kid. And we kind of prolonged the Christmas gift opening experience as a kid. And so we would actually take turns and go one by one and appreciate and awe at the gifts that each child got. Like, ooh, new socks, that's wonderful, right? Uh, But in addition to that, uh, what else we did is with every single gift, you had to guess what was inside uh, the, the present inside the wrapping. And so you'd start guessing like, is this for use inside the house or outside the house? Use it in the kitchen or in the living room. And you had to get down to like what it was. And then my mom would say, open the gift. And we would open the gift and celebrate it and all that sort of stuff. And so uh, opening presents for us would last uh, from morning into afternoon, almost till dinner time. That's how long it would last for us. And I did not know this was weird until I was engaged and I went to Trisha's parents' house and I gave a gift to her brother and he just opened it without, without guessing what was in it. Did, I didn't know it was weird, but that's, that's how we did Christmas as a child. And everyone has their own Christmas traditions. We still do it now uh, with my family and my home. So it lasts a really long time. But, but here's the thing is that what you learn is that as you grow up, is there are two sides to Christmas, okay? As a kid, there's one side to Christmas where you get there Christmas morning, all these presents are magically there, you open them, you have this great food, and it is just a wonderful time. It's a great day, it's a celebration, it's so exciting. But then there's the other side of Christmas that you learn about when you grow up, right? It's the it's side of Christmas where you try to figure out what everyone in your family would like for Christmas. You, you go and you shop for all of these Christmas presents, you know, comparing the ratings, making sure you get the best deal. And then you have to wrap these presents and put them under the tree. And then you have to uh, cook this great breakfast and great lunch for Christmas. And so the Christmas experience is very different 
for a young child as it is for an adult. It's a lot busier for an adult. There's a lot more things that you have to do. And so there's kind of two sides of Christmas. It's the same way with the first Christmas. With the very first Christmas, there are two sides of the Christmas story. There's the traditional story that we often hear and listen to from the Gospel of Matthew and Luke about a baby born in a manger. That's the one we typically hear about. But today we actually get to hear the other side of the Christmas story, which is real and true, but it is a spiritual, heavenly version of the Christmas story. And so if you would, please open up to Revelation chapter 12 as we look at this other side of the Christmas story. Uh, If you are visiting us today, we just finished um, going through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches. And so we figured it's a good time to to go ahead and look at the Revelation version of the Christmas story. Uh, If you remember, the book of Revelation starts with a Greek word, apocalypsis, from which we get the word apocalypse. And it simply means to reveal or to uncover or disclose. And so the picture it gives is of pulling back a curtain to show what is behind the curtain. And so what Revelation chapter 12 does is it pulls back the curtain on the Christmas story and shows us the other side of the Christmas story, the heavenly, the spiritual part of the Christmas story. And so let's read that together. Revelation chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and carrying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Let's pray. Lord God, as we turn to uh, this heavenly version of the Christmas story, pray God that you would help us to understand it. There are Uh, images and and, and terminology in here that might be confusing to us, God. But Lord, pray that you expand, expand our understanding of the glory of what happened that Christmas morning, that we might again behold you with new light and new joy and new fervor. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Since it is the Sunday before Christmas, uh, you may have been expecting a sermon about a silent night uh, with a nursing mother and lowing cattle, whatever that means, lowing cattle, and a beautiful sleeping baby. And you will hear that version of the Christmas story Friday at the Christmas Eve service. But since we are looking at Christmas from the heavenly realms, from the spiritual realms, instead of hearing about a happy nursing mother, we are going to hear about a woman in agonizing pain. 
Instead of hearing about a gentle lowing cattle, we are actually going to hear about a fierce killer red dragon. And instead of hearing about a beautiful sleeping baby, we're going to hear about a dominating global king. And so let's start by looking at the other side of the Christmas story, by looking at that first character, an anguished woman. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. When I first read these verses, I just assumed it was talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus. But as I listened to uh, pretty much every commentary and every preacher of every denomination on this passage, they're in agreement that this is not talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And as you go throughout the chapter and study the context, that becomes clear. But this woman is faithful Israel, the true people of God from whom this child would come. You see, throughout the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as a woman, true Israel. So in Isaiah 54, it describes Israel as a mother whose offspring will possess the nations. Jeremiah 4, talking about Israel, says, For I heard a cry as a woman in labor, anguish as one giving birth to her first child. And then we get to the New Testament. And even Galatians 4, it says, But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. And so you see that this woman that is portrayed here in Revelation chapter 12, it's faithful and true Israel. We even see this in some of the adornments of the woman. You know, we, we see she's adorned with the sun and the moon and a crown of 12 stars, which represents the 12 tribes of Israel. It, it echoes a, a, uh, a dream that Joseph had. And we read about in Genesis chapter 37. I have it on the screen up here for you. See if you see the parallels between this. It says, then he dreamed, Joseph it is, Joseph dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father, and his father's name was Jacob, was also renamed by God Israel. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I, the sun, and your mother, the moon, and your brothers, the 11 stars, indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And so Joseph was communicating about the people of God as a whole. And you see the parallels here with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, sorry, not Mary, th this woman in agony who is not Mary, the mother of Jesus, but is the people of God. And so we have this picture, this picture of Israel, of faithful and true Israel as this woman, okay? And, and what I want to direct our attention to here is what it says in verse 2 about the people of God, Israel. Verse 2 says, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So, so what does this mean? What does this mean that there's this people group that is crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth? Well, as we'll see, what is very instrumental to what is being told to us here is what happens back in Genesis chapter 3. If you remember in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, that ancient serpent, the devil, comes in and he deceives Adam and Eve. And they sin against God and bring death and destruction into the world. And then in Genesis 3.15, God comes and he gives a promise to Satan, to the serpent. And this is the promise he gives to him. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And then he says, he, that's singular, he will crush your head 
and you will strike his heel. And so here at the very beginning of the Bible, right after the fall of mankind, God makes this promise to send a promised child that will come and crush the head of Satan. And so from that point on, this promised child, the, the people of God are in labor waiting for this child to come. But all along of the way, they are in anguish. They are in the pains of childbirth. And so even from the very beginning, Adam and Eve's sons, Cain kills Abel. Immediately you hear the groanings and the pains of childbirth as they are longing for this seed of the woman to come and to defeat Satan and undo all the wrong things in the world. You see it in Genesis 6. With, where before the flood, it says the wickedness of man was great in all the earth and every intention of his thought was evil all the time. And so for Noah and for the righteous, there is this longing, this groaning, this agony for Christ to come and to make all things right. Again, we see this throughout the Old Testament, the agony of childbirth. 400 years, the people of God are in Egypt suffering in slavery and there's an agonizing cry for this child to come and make things right again. 40 years in the wilderness, crying out in agony. They finally take the promised land and then their kings lead them into rebellion and they're exiled out of the promised land. And again, the people are crying out in the pains of childbirth, in agony, waiting for this promised child to come and make things right again. That is the people of God in the Old Testament, Israel. And yet today, us Christians in the church still experience the pains of childbirth. Matthew 24, Jesus puts it this way. He says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And then hear this. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. You see, there are birth pains all around us as we await for this promised child to come again. This Christmas, there is anguished groaning in Oxford, Michigan, where four families will be having Christmas dinner without their teenage children. There is groaning anguish in Mayfield, Kentucky, where, where seven families will not have a father or a mother at the table because of a horrendous tornado. There is anguish groaning in the whole state of Wisconsin because of families divided and people devastated by substance abuse. There is anguish and groaning in Waukesha, Wisconsin, where six families will not have their mom or their grandma around this Christmas season. There is anguish groaning in Green Bay, Wisconsin, as there's a rise of shootings in the city and people are at unease in their residence. There's anguish groaning in our household over troubled marriages, friction with kids and parents. There's anguish groaning in our bodies as we have hurting knees and hips and fill in the blank. But most of all, there is a anguished groaning in our soul as we struggle against the influence and power of sin, as, as we struggle against spiritual depression and unwanted despair. And so hear this very clearly. Every groan of suffering that you have, every groan of exasperation, every groan of pain that you have in your life are the groans of labor. They are birth pains that are awaiting 
for this promised child to come again and finish the job taking out, crushing the head of Satan. Most of you know this. I have four kids. And as I've shared with you before, I, I did not find uh, labor all that painful personally. Um, my wife assures me that it was much worse for her than it was for me. Uh, but this past week, I actually saw an article uh, from 2019, and the title of it is, Men Can Now Pay to Experience the Pain of Childbirth. And so it goes on to detail how, I don't know, some, some scientists came up with this way that men could, could help understand how painful it is to have contractions. And so what they do is they hook up electrodes to, uh, to the men's stomach, and then they pulse it so that men... Feel, can, can tell what it feels like uh, to be in the pains of childbirth. And so you can actually see the video. It's pretty funny. This guy's there, and this woman is applying these past, patches with these electrodes, and I'm not kidding you. She has this huge smile on her face, and she's saying to him, just so you know, uh, there's going to be very sharp pain. And so she turns on the electrodes, and he is screaming, and he is crying just like a woman in childbirth, and he yells out saying, it feels like there's an alien inside me. It feels like I'm being stabbed in the stomach. And then the article ends by saying, um, this is a chance for the man to show his partner that he is there for them to help them experience a little bit of what their partner is going through. No, thank you. I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to go through this. It looks awful. But as I looked at this video, I, I, I had two questions. First is, I wondered why any woman would ever agree to have a baby because it looked just so painful. But my bigger question was, why would any woman have a second baby? I mean, if she's been through it once and she's felt all of the pains of childbirth, why would she do it again? And the only logical reason I could think of is the only reason a woman would go through the pain of childbirth is because the joy of the baby is greater than the pain of the labor, right? The joy of the baby is greater than the pain of the labor. Every groan of suffering in our world, every groan of exasperation, every groan of pain in your life are birth pains. They are an anguished groan for the promised child to come again and crush the head of Satan. What makes these pains manageable and tolerable in our life is that we know that there is a promised child that is coming again who is not only greater than all of our pain, but actually takes away all of our pain for all eternity. As Revelation 21 promises us, this child will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things, the agony and suffering of birthing pains has passed away. And so Christmas is a reminder to us that the people of God are in agonizing pain. It doesn't dismiss the pain. It's where we're in agonizing pain, awaiting for this promised child to come again. The second character that we see in this Christmas story is the killer red dragon. You know, I, I am a guy who doesn't like scary movies. I don't get 
why people like scary movies. Uh, you may be one of them. I, I don't get it. But, but because of that, when I hear about a dragon, I have a pretty tame perception of a dragon. When I hear about a dragon, I think of Puff the Magic Dragon or, or, or the dragon from Peach Dragon, right? And, and so this dragon is just this huge uh, animal that's misunderstood and, you know, very lovable. And all this dragon really wants is a hug, right? That's all this dragon wants. But, but in this passage, that is not the type of dragon that is being explained here. If you've seen the recent Marvel movie, Shang-Chi, you see a dragon at the end of the movie that is ferocious and scary. And that's a little bit of the picture of what's being described here, except the, the dragon being described here is much bigger, much more powerful, and much more intelligent than that dragon. Look with me here at verse three. It says, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great, as in an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head, seven diadems. So the seven heads represent uh, the cunning, sly, deceptive, wicked intelligence of this dragon who is far superior in intelligence to any human being. The 10 horns represent its great power. If you think of animals in the wilderness, what do they use their horns for? They use their horns to attack and to kill and to dominate their enemies. Here he has 10 horns and then seven diadems, which is a fancy name for crown. But, but this is a false claim of kingship in the world. Verse four continues, and it says, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Again, this is just communicating the enormity and power of the dragon. Verse four continues, and it says, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it, literally, so that he might consume the baby by eating it. This imagery is meant to be disturbing. This imagery is meant to be repulsive and nauseating of a dragon eating a human baby. Now here's the question. Why, why would this great, big, awesome, and fierce dragon waste his time on a little baby? Why wouldn't he go after bigger and greater Enemies. Well, to answer that question, we first need to know who this dragon is. And we don't have to guess who the dragon is. It tells us in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. And again, we'll cover this next week. But verse 9, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, the serpent that was in the Garden of Eden, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the intelligent, cunning, wicked deceiver, not just uh, of, of, of the ignorant, not of just of the immature, but of the whole world. And so why does this devil dragon seek to consume this baby? Well, remember what we read in Genesis 3.15, and, and I'll put it back up here on the screen, and we'll read verses 4 through 14 and 15. It says this. It says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, that is the devil dragon, because you have done this, cursed are you above livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And then here's their promise again. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, which is singular. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see, as big and mighty and smart and cunning and evil as this dragon is, even though he is unbeatable by anyone on earth, he knows that there is one sent by God to crush his head. 
a promised child, a Messiah, the only one that can thwart his plans, his agenda. And so he takes target at that one child to destroy that child. You know, this reminds me of those superhero movies. The one that, that comes to mind first is, is the Superman movie, uh, the old one where Lux Luthor is making this plan to, to kind of take over the world, he, or at least section off part of California and kill a bunch of people and earn a lot of money out of it. And, and he knows that there's only one person who can stop him. And that only person that can stop him is Superman. And so he sets his aims directly at Superman, lures him into his underground cavern, puts kryptonite on him and leaves him for dead and goes off to do his evil bidding. Satan knows that there is no human being except for one that can crush his head. And so he sets his aims on this baby, this tiny little baby seeking to devour. Now this again is in the earthly spiritual realms that this is going on, but it also plays itself out in the, the earthly realms, okay? I, sorry, heavenly spiritual realms, but it also plays itself out on the earthly realms. And we see this in, in, in Matthew chapter two. If, if you want, you can turn there. It's page 807 in the Red Bible. But in Matthew chapter two, we see this being played out on earthly terms. In verse two, it says, uh, well, sorry, let me back up a little bit. So the wise men come from the east. They see the star. They come and they come to worship the king, uh, the newborn king, Jesus. And so they come to King Herod, uh, who is the king of Judea. And they go to ask him where the king is. And this is what happens. Verse two, it says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, the king heard this, he was troubled. So Herod did not like that another king was being born in his dominion. He wanted to be the king. He didn't want another king to compete with. And so he sends away the wise men to go worship this newborn king and then to come back and report his location uh, he says it's to worship him, but we know it's so that he can go and kill the baby. So we skip down to verse 12 in Matthew 2. It says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the wise men departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the baby and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And then skip down to verse 16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under. Could you imagine how horrendous this would be if, if the mayor of Green Bay says, we are going to steal all the children two years and younger away from the mother's chest and we are going to slaughter them in the streets. How evil, how horrendous would something like this be? And the question is, how could Herod be this evil and this wicked? And I think the only explanation is that he was merely a pawn for that serpent dragon that sought to come and devour the promised child. See, this is the other side of the Christmas story. The, an agonizing woman, the people of God going through suffering and groaning and pain, awaiting for the child to come once and now the child to come again. But also this baby-eating killer dragon that is way smarter, way more powerful, awaiting to destroy this child. The final person in this passage is that Christmas child the ruling king of kings. Look at verse five with me. 
It says she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. We may wonder why a rod of iron. If, if, you're, if you know history, you know that, that there was a, an age called the Bronze Age, uh, and it lasted till 1200 BC, in which most of the, 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 um, excuse me, the, uh, the weapons were made of bronze. Um, and, and the reason why the Bronze Age ended in 1200 BC was because of the Iron Age. Uh, because somebody found out that there, was a, that there was a more destructive metal that they could make their weapons out of. So they made them out of iron to triumph over those who had bronze weapons. And so then started the Iron Age, which kind of still exists even to today. And what John is communicating here is that this tiny, seemingly helpless and needy baby is one day going to be the king of all kings and lord of all lords. And he is going to rule and reign, not just over his nation or many nations, but he's going to rule and reign over every nation. Now, one of the interesting things is that this, this, uh, this picture of an iron scepter comes from Psalm chapter 2. And, and oftentimes when, when the New Testament writers refer back to something in the Psalms, they, they, they picture the people reading this to picture the entire Psalm. And so I just briefly want to read through Psalm chapter 2 because I think to understand the immensity of, of Jesus coming with an iron scepter is not understood until we read this. It's 12 verses. I'll read it fairly quickly. Here's what it says. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? We still see that today all over the world. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And then I love this part. He who sits in the heavenly heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in Derision. It's like a preschooler with a twig trying to attack a tank, right? These people trying to usurp the living God. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so who is this king that the Lord God set on Zion? Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Then here it is, the quote from Revelation 12. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so all of these majestic empires are but like clay to this coming king who can dash them against rock and break them into pieces. And so how should these kings of the earth respond to this coming king? How should we respond to this promised one, this coming king? Well, the psalm continues and says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, S-O-N, not S-U-N. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. And so God the Father sends God the Son to complete his dominion over the entire world. And yet we know that dominion is not complete. All we have to do is turn on the news to see it. And we see it here in verse 5. Again, it says, She gave birth to a male child. I'm back in Revelation 12. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And it says this, but, but her child was caught up to God 
and to his throne. This is talking about the ascension of Jesus, that Jesus ascended into heaven where he is ruling and reigning, but he has not yet fully exercised his dominion in this world to, to, to conquer all of the evil kings and powers in this world. He is ruling and reigning, but also waiting to come again where he will usher in an era of peace and prosperity and joy for the people of God like they had never known before. There's a, there's a song by Bing Crosby that I learned about yesterday. Uh, and um, it's called, I, I may not say it right, uh, it's called Good King Wenceslas. Does anyone know it? What, how do you say it? Wenceslas? Wenceslas? Okay, I, I literally had a stream of people after the service saying, you didn't say it right. So how many of you heard of this song, Good King Wenceslas? Okay. All right. Oh, wow. We actually have some kids, like first service, everyone over 50, raise their hand. No one else had heard of it. Good King Wesles. So it's kind of a Christmas carol, a Christmas song. And King Wesles, uh, we'll just call him King W. It's easier for me. King W uh, was an actual king. Uh, he was also known as Vaklak the Good. And he lived from 907 to 935 AD. And his great grand, or his grandfather uh, actually became a Christian and was influential in his life and him coming to faith in Christ. And when King W's father died, he took over the throne. And he was such a good king, such a great king. One 12th century preacher talked back about the king, and he says this. This is how he describes it. He says, No one doubts that rising every night from his noble bed with bare feet and only one chamberlain, he went around to God's church and gave alms generously to the widows, orphans, those in prison, and afflicted by every difficulty. And so there's this song, this carol written about him seeing a poor man out in the cold, bringing him in and sharing this royal feast with him. Uh, today in Prague, there's actually a statue of King W. You can see it right here. That's him right there. And you can, the next picture, you'll see the back of him looking over the city. And one of the coolest things is that there is a legend about this king. And the legend about this king is that if the Czech Republic ever is in danger, that this king will rise from his sleep with a legendary sword and a sleeping army to bring peace to his land. You see, sometimes a sword is needed. Sometimes an iron scepter is needed to bring peace. Jesus is coming with an iron scepter. He's giving an iron scepter because when he returns, Jesus will crush all of his and our enemies and bring forever a peace to the people of God. Jesus will have global domination and that's a good thing because he is a good king, a great avenger, and a wonderful savior. You know, Satan knows that Jesus is coming again. We'll study this more next week to, to, to exercise his full dominion. But do you know that? Do you know that Christ is king over all things, including over you? If you don't know that, if you're learning to know that, I encourage you with the end of Psalm 2 again, which says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quick at hand, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, when Christ returns as king, he will be a ferocious king. He will be a terrorizing king, but those who take refuge in him, he will be a good king. He will be a redeeming king and he will be a protector king. 
And so this, again, is the other side of the Christmas story. There's the agonizing woman who is the people of God crying out in the birth pains, waiting for the promised child to come once and now to come again. There is this baby-killing red dragon that seeks to devour this promised child on Christmas morning. But then there is this Christmas child, this promised one of Israel, the ruling king of kings who is coming back to make all things right again. I want to end uh, by looking at verse 6. And this is going to take a little bit, so don't think it's super quick. But this is the aftermath of Christmas. Look at verse 6. It says, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,000 260 days, okay? We're going to talk a lot about this next week, but the wilderness represents a place where the people of God are tempted, where they are tried, but where they also receive the provisions of God. So you can think of Israel wandering in the wilderness, right? There are temptations, there are trials, but daily God provides manna from heaven for them, okay? We'll talk more about that next week. But what I want to really look at here is this number 1,260, 1,260 is a representative number uh, in the book of Revelation, as much of the numbers are in the book of Revelations. And the number 1,260 would have stuck out to the original readers. And I'll explain that here in a second. But 1,260 days is equivalent to 42 months, which is equivalent to three and a half years, which is equivalent to a time, times, and half a time, which we read throughout the scriptures. And so in the book of Daniel, we read about this 1,260 days. It is a prophecy of something that's coming in the future. But for those in Revelation, it's something that happened in the past. And again, this 1,260 days would have been like a, a light bulb would have gone on for him. For example, if I said to you four score and seven years ago, that number means something to you, Right? It means the Gettysburg Address. It means maybe the turning point in the war where, where Lincoln rallies the troops to go and fight for something that is good. In the same way, 1,260 days, or time, times, and times and a half, was a very significant time period for the people of God. You see, about 200 years before Jesus, Israel fell under Syrian rule. And the kings were, were awful to them. But there was one that was especially brutal to the people of God. His name was Antiochus IV. And he gave himself the name Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which means God manifest. So he called himself God. He printed on the coin. So everyone would think that he is a God. In 170 BC, he killed the high priest in Jerusalem, Onius III. He executed thousands of Jews. It was like a holocaust in those days. He stopped their temple observances. He outlawed copies of the Hebrew scripture. He banned circumcision. He ended the sacrificial system in the temple. And if that were not enough, he deliberately defamed the temple of God in Jerusalem by taking a pig, uh, which was considered by Jews to be unclean. Uh, it's clean now, so we can have a bacon potluck. But at that time, it was unclean. A pig was unclean. And he took the pig into the holy of holies, the most holy place in all of Israel, the holiest place in the temple. And he took this pig into the holy of holies and upon the altar slaughtered the pig to the god Zeus. And he completely defiled the temple, moving in all of these idols into there. Eventually, a leader arose among the Jews. 
His name was Judas Maccabeus, meaning the hammer, Judas the hammer, or Judas the sledgehammer because of his ferocity in battle. He was a Jewish uh, priest. His father was a Jewish priest. And because he knew that, that, the, that the army that he was fighting against was so strong, he started to institute the origins of guerrilla warfare. And so that started what, what we now call the Maccabean result, uh, sorry, the Maccabean revolt. And the Maccabean revolt lasted, listen to this, 1,260 days. It lasted 3.5 years from 167 BC to 164 BC. And it was a time of great turmoil, great battle, but resulted in a surprising time of peace and prosperity for the people of God. The Jewish holiday Hanukkah, meaning dedication, commemorates the restoration of the Jewish worship service in the temple in Jerusalem in 164 BC after Judas Maccabees removed the statues depicting Greek gods and goddesses and then he purified the temple. And so for the original readers of the book of Revelations, when they heard this number 1,260 days, what would have come to mind to them is that this is a time of battle, of struggle, of pain, but also of God's provision. And that there is a day coming on that 1,260th day, which is symbolic here. But on that day, when surprisingly, by a greater Judas Maccabeus, there will be eternal peace and eternal prosperity for the people of God. You see, the promised one in Genesis 3.15 came that Christmas morning, was raised, went to the cross, and died for our sins to give victory over Satan, sin, and death, and rose again from the dead, but ascended into heaven, and is coming again for that glorious day when the 1260 days of struggle, when the wilderness time of struggle is over, And he will usher in a time of peace and prosperity for the people of God. You know, I'm guessing, I'll end with this. I'm guessing many of you have in your house a manger scene, which is wonderful. It's a great reminder of what happened in the earthly realms that Christmas morning. But this Christmas, don't forget the other side of the Christmas story. Don't forget what happened in the heavenly spiritual realms that Christmas morning in which the agonizing people of God welcomed in the promised child, the Savior, and fended off the devil dragon so that we can now look again to Christ's return when he will rule the world with truth and grace and make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we are so thankful that you share with us the other side of the Christmas story, the heavenly spiritual realms of the Christmas story, God. Something that we so often take for granted in our own hustle and bustle around this time of the year. And yet, Lord, we are so thankful because this dragon has come to terrorize us and to oppress us. And it is so much stronger and bigger than us. But you have come to defeat the dragon through your son, the promised one, Jesus Christ. And we are so thankful for that. And we long for the day that you will come again and you will bring peace and prosperity to the people of God for all eternity. Lord, as we turn to your table, we're reminded, we're reminded of your victory, not in your death, but in your resurrection.
God, that you overcame Satan, sin and death on our behalf. And so we come to this, looking forward to the heavenly feast where we celebrate your final and complete victory. Nourish our hearts through this in the midst of battling, in the midst of these 1,260 days. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.